Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Yes, Matt Chorley is still away on his Atlantic crossing, so you've got me, Patrick Maguire, for two more days instead. Busy show today. We were talking Afghanistan in our big thing at 11 o'clock. But before then, it was a new-look columnist panel. We had Kenny Farquharson from the Times in Edinburgh and Manveen Rana from Stories of Our Times. Great discussion. Don't go anywhere. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, time for our all-star columnist panel. This morning, I'm joined by Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Morning, Manveen. Hello. And by Kenny Farquharson. He's a columnist for the Times in Edinburgh. Morning, Kenny. Morning, Patrick. How are you both? How are you, Kenny? All very well. I'm wearing my um, um, my woolly jumper to kind of keep the cold at bay. We've got thick snow here in Edinburgh. I was going to say, what's what, what's the temperature? Is it sub-zero? Sub zero, but um, uh, but I, I'm 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 going to put the heating on any any minute now, any day now. Uh, Manveen, what about podcast land? Any warmer? Uh, well, I, I have to say I've caved. I've already turned the heating on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I, it's it's too cold. It's that's, too cold. That's Londoners for you, Kenny. That's us <laughs> Londoners for you. Uh, right, know. let's we're, get. Let's, we're not used to it. I know. I know. We're 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 Kenny's made of sterner stuff. Right. Let's start. Uh, in Scotland, uh, shall we? Sorry, not in Scotland. Uh, just uh, south of Scotland. God, you know, my northern credentials are taking a real battering this week. Uh, we'll start with Michael Gove, who at least is a Scot or a lap Scot. He gave the go-ahead to the UK's first deep coal mine in 30 years. Green groups say it's indefensible. Uh, but Michael Gove says it will help maintain the British steel industry. Uh, Manveen, let's start with you. Are you persuaded by that argument or is it? Uh, does it undermine everything the government has been saying for the past uh, couple of years about net zero and the UK's presidency of COP26 and all the rest of it? Well, I mean, I, you know, as every green campaigner in the country seems to have come out against it, it's quite obviously environmentally a bit of a disaster. But also, I'm not entirely convinced by Michael Gove's argument. I think it was much more convincing two days ago before everybody involved with British Steel came out and said they wouldn't use this coal and it wouldn't have any use for them. So it feels like it's not standing up on either the economic or the environmental 
um, argument. I guess it's really just, it feels like it's just all about creating jobs in the local area. It's sort of like, a, you know, levelling up hasn't had many obvious benefits yet. It's been, you know, there's nothing tangible for people to point to. It feels like this is a, a really quick fix on that front, but I'm not sure it's going to help economically or and certainly not environmentally it sort of it does knock back all of our aims about um uh, you know trying to get to net zero um you know they've tried to say that steel is needed in in that great aim and, and this will help the steel industry but nobody in steel seems to want it so i can't quite see who it's for and symbolically kelly as manveen says it's it's quite interesting isn't it to see the conservatives pitch themselves as the party of heavy industry and indeed of coal mines, given that, you know, for the past uh, three decades, uh, many communities across the country have seen them as the party of the opposite, as the party of running these industries down, and certainly not the party who wanted to keep pits open. Well, it depends on what hat they're wearing at any particular time. You know, I thought there was a performative element to the way the, the political class in general, the Tories in particular, embraced environmentalism a few years back. You know, you... You got the feeling they were they've been bounced into being more green by their children, you know, or in, in Boris's case, his wife. You know, yeah. it all seemed a bit flimsy and, ins and insincere. And and lo and behold, that's exactly uh, what's happened. It's now it's now crumbled. You know, uh, okay, it has crumbled for a pretty good reason. I think anybody's commitment to saving the planet is going to be stretched if we've got blackouts this winter. Um, but the UK government policy on this seems to be a muddle. And, and a good example of this is the um, onshore wind farms. It looked like Sunak's about to make yet another U-turn on this. You know, first he proposed a moratorium on onshore uh, wind turbines. And now it looks like he's going to drop that because of a backbench rebellion. You know, it, nothing looks like on this energy and on um, industry, nothing lo looks like it's been done for... A principled reason, you know, it, it all looks contingent, it all looks politics, it all looks like calculation. It doesn't feel like governing for the greater good. And it's not strictly comparable, Kenny, but there's a similar, Nicola Sturgeon has faced a similar debate about uh, new oil fields, hasn't she? Yeah, but I mean, it's Nic Nicola has it easy slightly. She can afford to take um, environmental stand on things like um, uh, being against new oil fields and also being against any new um, nuclear uh, power stations in Scotland, even the small small ones. There was a there was a, a proposal to have this Scotland's biggest um, fuel depot, Grangemouth. Um, um, powered by a small nuclear generator, but it looks like she, uh, the, that was Ineos that were trying to do that. Uh, but it looks like she's going to um, block that as well. But it's easy for her because she is no, she has no responsibility for the bigger picture mm. in the sense of the economy. You know, it's the same is true uh, for her on 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 um, uh, pace on on on. Um, pay awards for public sector uh, workers. Nicola Sturgeon's not responsible for the rate of inflation in this country. She's not responsible for the rate of uh, in interest rates in this country. She can afford to do these things without re regard to the bigger picture. Yeah, and it's a, it's a big picture that um, ultimately responsibility lies with politicians down here in Westminster, of which more in a second. Stay with us, guys. I'm going to bring in Katie Balls uh, from The Spectator. Uh, now, how many Christmas cards do you send? It's surely fewer uh, than the 3,200 that the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves sends out every year. Uh, that's an intriguing detail in a piece uh, by Katie, the Deputy Political Editor of The Spectator, uh, in this week's magazine. Morning, Katie. 
Morning. Um, this is really the standout revelation from uh, a very interesting uh, interview <laughs> with the person who may be this country's next chancellor. And it's a pretty, uh, pretty worrying one, although she's doing a bit for UK productivity, maybe. Um, talk us through this remarkable uh, PR regime of uh, uh, PR offensive of Rachel Reeves. She says she starts signing her Christmas cards in the summer. Well, as you say, in an interview, it also looks at um, fiscal responsibility, what should take from Osborne and Cameron that Keir Starmer and her could emulate the fact that she's never going to seek advice from John McDonnell. The standout part was the revelation that she sends 3,200 Christmas cards and she starts the operation in the summer. She does a ink signature on every single card. So some politicians in the etiquette of Christmas cards will do the printed signatures, often a trick of prime ministers and actually some leaders of the opposition. Um, whereas Rachel Reeves does not take that shortcut. And then I think she has to do group stages. She says she has a system by which she breaks it all down into different groups. And then I think when she has spare time um, from August onwards, she gets on signing some Christmas cards. Wow. Uh, have you got one yet? No, I was assured after the interview that I, that I was already on the list. But we also got one for the spectator office. Um, I had heard a rumour basically about her extensive Christmas card list before going on into the interview, which is why we asked her and she said, too right. <laughs> it's like, it's like you know, I imagine she, she feels as you do, um, you know, just before a party conference, just in, you know, just in, you know, May and June, when people will all be all over you saying, oh, Katie, how are you doing? You know, it's lovely to see you. By the way, am I on the list for the spectator party? Not that I would, uh, not that I or anyone else who works in this show would ever be so shameless. Uh, but anyway, let's, you know, let's, um, let's talk about uh, the rest of your interview, with Rachel Reeves. Uh, she says that chess, uh, which was a big obsession as a kid, uh, she learned that, Attack is the best form of defence. Yes, she says that she's a very aggressive chess player. She says attack, attack, attack for the three times and she carries that through. Though one that we didn't manage to get in the interview just for space reasons, that she recently met with um, Gary Kasparov, who obviously is former grand chess master, who obviously does a lot of work on Russia, critical of Putin. And they were meeting and talking, I think, about lots of serious issues, but they snuck in a quick game. And um, her team was saying, oh, we don't know if she's actually got time to do this chess game. And he said, it won't take very long. <laughs> and he was right. She said it, it ended so quickly, she didn't have the time to count the moves. So um, while she was the champion, I think the British girls champion, age 14, um, not quite the level of... Um, well, lots of revelations there in uh, in your interview with Rachel Reeves, not least on Christmas cards and chess and the small matter of the British economy as well. Katie Balls, Deputy Political Editor of The Spectator, thanks very much for joining us. Let me uh, bring in uh, Manveen and Kenny again. Uh, Manveen, best Christmas card from a politician or otherwise you've ever received? <laughs> um, we used to get, yeah, you, you, I, oh God, I'm trying to remember. Isn't that awful? I can't. Um, you've got, you've, you've had so say, many from luminaries in public life. No, it's just that they were so sort of unexceptional. Um, I always think, even if you've hand-signed it, never, ever, ever send out a Christmas card with a picture of you on it, which is what they invariably do, because that sort of seems to rob the spirit of Christmas well, somehow. I can tell you that Keir Starmer's Christmas card, which uh, landed in the Times office yesterday, has a picture of him and his wife on Hampstead Heath, so he's uh, violated that golden rule. It's not quite as bad <laughs> as the one where uh, Tony and Cherie Blair... Uh, are giving rictus grins from a few years ago. Kenny, you must have had loads of uh, Christmas cards from politicians in your times. Any uh, any howlers? 
Well, um, the, the, I, I get fewer than 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 you might imagine. I, I think I upset too many focuses over <laughs> the years. Um, I used to get a Christmas card every year from from David Cameron when he was Prime Minister, and uh, and I would just pass it on to to my children who would deface it with um, uh, you know felt pens and uh, uh, sharpies and everything else. Um, uh, so I'm not sure that I'm not sure that, that when Christmas cards are sent into households where they're not entirely welcome, I'm not entirely sure about their fate when they get there. But I, I received my first Christmas card this year. On November the seventeenth. That's outrageous. Can you name uh, and shame, or are you going to? Are you, I, you... I, I will name and shame. It was my cousin Avril, and if you're listening, Avril. Avril, I love you dearly. But you know, this is just no. It's not on. It's about a month too early. This you festive know. mission creep, Avril, you're a disgrace. Um, do you still send them, Kenny? Um, I send a few only to uh, closest relatives, and I always send them on the last posting day before Christmas. That's the proper way. That's the correct way. None of this um, doing it in the summer like Rachel Reeves. High stakes as well, given the strikes this year. Manveen, do you still have a long Christmas card list, or has it been whittled down after, uh, like Kenny, after a few too many explosive scoops? I've stopped sending them. I've stopped sending them. I pretend it's for environmental reasons, but actually it's because I had too many years where... Unlike Kenny, I just missed the last post. And it, there's nothing more embarrassing than sort of, you know, knowing people are going to get these in like February, probably. So now I don't, I just don't even attempt it. And I pretend it's entirely for my green credentials. Well, I'm sure there are lots of people who think you you hold a grudge as well. Manveen, um, your latest podcast is looking at Rishi Sunak after six weeks, um, which may not be, uh, you know, Roosevelt's first hundred days as a milestone, <laughs> but it is at least... Uh, much longer than Liz Trust managed, or just about now longer than the 49 days Liz Trust manages, uh, managed uh, in number 10. Uh, is it time for Rishi Sunak to break out the bunking, uh, bunting? Because in red box this morning, uh, that's the Times' uh, morning email, which you can get every uh, day just after 8.30 if you're a subscriber. Um, our latest YouGov poll shows that they're still 24 points behind uh, Labour. So uh, what can Rishi Sunak uh, say after 48, uh, 49 days uh, about his uh, about his premiership is the fact that it's longer than Liz Truss the only achievement he has to uh, to offer. Well, I mean that's not nothing, um, mm. but I I think his problem is probably that you know he came into power and very quickly within a week or two did did the big things people wanted him to, which is basically reverse the Truss era. But nobody quite knows what happens after that. Um, you know, I think the the, the leadership election didn't really sort of go into big issues apart from how and what on earth do you do about the economy and uh, in in the immediate future and i think for a lot of people they're not quite sure what his great agenda is you know he's he's clearly very bright he's a technocrat but what what are his big ideas and in the last week or so we've seen quite a lot of things we thought he believed in um being reversed you know there's been a lot of u-turns a lot of sort of uh, giving in to rebellions on the back benches, and there's a real sense that nobody quite knows what the direction is. And I think it's quite interesting for Keir Starmer too, because you know, for ages we sort of thought maybe just being, you know, uh, boringly stable might be the answer. And I think there's just suddenly this sort of sense of, but now what? Um, and I think Labour seems to have picked up on that because you know, in the last week, pre-rebellions, um, you know, if you look, I, I I picked up the paper and and you couldn't see very much about what the government was doing about mm. the big crises of the moment. You know, what are they doing on strikes? What are they doing on the cost of living crisis? All the pieces were about Keir Starmer saying, what is the government doing on, on the cost of living crisis? Or Keir Starmer putting forward another, you know, another idea on, on the House of Lords or, or on, on private schools. And it sort of feels like they haven't quite got to the stage you know, apart from this morning with, with the, the coal mines, which are already being sort of panned by uh, a lot of people in the country, 
there's no sense of where this government is going. Yeah, and if you leave a vacuum, it tends to be filled by uh, your opponents. Kenny, um, how is this going down in Scotland? Because causing a lot of excitement uh, yesterday was that uh, new poll uh, by Ipsos conducted for STV, which found a 56 to 44 split in favour of Scottish independence. Um, how is Rishi Sunak? Uh, how is Rishi Sunak's uh, nascent premiership going down off the border? Well, Sunak seems to be a, a bit of an irrelevance here. You know, the, there is a Scottish political bubble that's almost an, impervious to things like changes of prime minister and uh, wars and uh, energy crises and what have you. You know, um, I mean, th this is obviously very good for the SNP. The SNP is very good at taking what appears to be a setback and turning it into a triumph. You know, mm. they did this in 2014 after they were defeated in the independence referendum. In the following general election, they went from six MPs to 56 MPs. The same thing seems to be happening now. We've had the um, the Supreme Court decision uh, a couple of weeks ago that said it would be illegal for the Scottish government to unilaterally hold a referendum on independence. But, you know, by any measure, that's a setback. You know, and some of the language used by the justices was quite brutal on the whole case for, for self-government. You know, but the SNP, uh, you know, as is their want, they've turned this into a very useful campaign tool. They've made they made it um, an issue of like like bruised Scottish pride. You know, how dare they say we can't do something? We can do whatever we like. You know, and the Scottish public seems to, seems to agree. So they're, they're they're they bounce back. They seem to be quite in a good place. And and just briefly before we. Uh... We go on to the day's perhaps biggest story, uh, Kenny. Uh, Stephen Flynn, the new SNP Westminster leader, uh, we heard from him for the first time at PMQs yesterday. His election was seen as a sign that all isn't well, that Nicola Sturgeon's authority might be slipping away, that there's a restlessness in parts of the SNP with her strategy. Is all of that unionist wishful thinking or is there some truth there? Um, I, I'm not sure it's it's as, quite as clear-cut as that, but I'm, I am told by my colleagues who are on the political front line that uh, Flynn went to see Nicola Sturgeon at Butte House, her, uh, her official residence, on Thursday. Um, and now we don't know uh, what happened in that meeting. We don't know how impressed or unimpressed Nicola Sturgeon was with Flynn. But, um, you know, a few days later on the Saturday, one of uh, Sturgeon's closest uh, neighbours in Glasgow and um, a Sturgeon loyalist um, declares that she's going to compete with uh, Flynn for the um, for the Westminster uh, leadership. Mm. So re take take from that what you will, but it would suggest that um, not all is well. Certainly, the people who voted for Flynn are discontents. Uh, they're discontents for quite a range of reasons on independence, on gender reform, on you know how, how the way how the SNP is cozied up to the Greens, a whole range of issues. But, you know, they are not people who are at one with the leadership. Now, uh, just before I let you both go, the biggest, most pressing question today. Manveen, are you going to be uh, getting home later and watching Harry and Meghan on Netflix? I, I don't think anybody can avoid it, really, can hmm. they? Um, I mean, not if you want to be able to to hold a conversation in this country any time in the next six months, I would have thought. Um, yeah, no, it's it's the only thing people are talking about. Uh, have you not? have you seen any of the clips? Have you seen the trailers? Uh, I've we, seen the trailers. Uh, and uh, God, I, I, they are... You're a serious journalist, uh, but I'll ask you this question anyway. You team, uh, you team Will or team Harry? I'm pleading impartiality. <laughs> of course, as a as a as a uh, you know as the 
as the host of uh, you know the most serious podcast in the country, <laughs> you can't possibly be drawn into such partisan mudslinging. Uh, Kenny, uh, what your thoughts? Will you be watching, or are you a conscientious objector? You know, I, I, you know, I have put myself in harm's way for journalism. You know, I, I, I've been on patrol in uh, a Taliban stronghold in Afghanistan. You know, I've, I've been threatened with a kneecapping in the hardest pub in the, the Gorbals with a cordless black and decker. You know, I'm, 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 but I am not, repeat, not going to watch the Harry and Meghan documentary. That was Kenny Farquharson and Manveen Rana there with our columnist panel. Remember, you can read Kenny and Manveen in The Times every week. And don't miss Stories of Our Times, The Times' daily podcast. You can get that, of course, with all the rest of The Times podcasts on The Times radio app. Coming up next, it's our big thing at 11 o'clock. We're looking at Afghan aid and The Times and Sunday Times' Christmas appeal. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, it's been more than a year since the world's eyes were on the fall of Kabul and the West's 20-year mission came to a very sudden end. Let's remind you of those events now, back in August 2021. All British troops assigned to NATO's mission in Afghanistan are now returning home. The Taliban have reached Afghanistan's capital, Kabul, and have taken over the presidential palace. Afghanistan's president, Ashraf Ghani, has fled the country, saying the Taliban have won. The Taliban is now effectively in control, including in the capital, Kabul. The takeover of the city has triggered deadly scenes of panic at the airport as people desperately try to leave. We will judge this regime based on the choices it makes and by its actions rather than by its words. Well, that was the summer of 2021. In winter uh, 2022, the situation for many ordinary Afghans is dire. About half the population is struggling to eat. Poverty is widespread and there's a shortage of medicine and widespread persecution by the Taliban, especially of women, continues. Um, the country's central bank reserves remain frozen. Long-term development assistance is largely suspended. And Afghanistan's fortunes have certainly changed dramatically since the US withdrawal in August last year and the return to power of the 
Taliban. Uh, it's for those reasons, then, uh, that the Times and Sunday Times 2022 Christmas Appeal is this year partnering with Afghan Aid, a charity that aims to provide Afghans with the training and tools they need to help themselves, their families and their communities. Uh, we're going to speak to the director of that charity in just a moment. Uh, just to remind you, the Times Christmas Appeal is where we partner with a number of charities and ask our readers and listeners to dig deep and show some Christmas generosity. Let's bring in then Charles Davey, who's the Managing Director of Afghan Aid. Good morning, Charles. Well, good morning there. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on Times Radio. Just give our listeners a sense of how rapidly and uh, uh, dramatically Afghanistan has changed since the withdrawal of, uh, of NATO troops uh, in 2021. I think when the troops pulled out, Taliban very quickly took control again, as you just reported. Um, international assets were frozen and the economy plunged into chaos. Uh, very little cash in the systems. Banks have been largely frozen since then. Um, people unable to get money out, um, move money around. Um, but recognize that this came in the midst of what is we're now entering the third year of drought. Um, so it would have been a very difficult time for Afghans in any case. But now we've got um, some of the most acute food insecurity in the world. As you just mentioned, about two, well, probably 70% of the population is in need of emergency humanitarian food assistance. And, um, you know, people, people are going to have coming into the winter now. It's cold today even. And... Uh, in the highlands and particular mountainous areas of Afghanistan, it's likely to hit probably minus 20, minus 25, some point through this winter. They don't have enough to keep warm. They don't have enough to feed themselves. And, um, you know, snow will snow will blanket the, the countryside in many areas, make it very difficult to access resources such as markets, clinics, get to school, all those things. It's going to be very difficult going ahead. And, and how bitter... Uh, Charles Davey, is, is an Afghan winter? It's really, really cold, um, you know, and uh, typically in the highlands there's a lot of snow, but unfortunately in the past two years has been little, hence the droughts that have that have come. But it doesn't mean that it's not it's not freezing cold. Uh, people have little, little electricity, little ability to heat their house, and, um, you know, they don't have modern clothing to, to keep warm with. And um, it gets it gets very, very cold, especially for the very young and for the very old who suffer considerably. I say without enough enough calories in their system, it's going to be a very difficult winter ahead. And, and so where does Afghan aid come in? Because lots of people who observed the withdrawal of Western forces and the and the collapse of of that regime last year will will think, well, there's been a complete sort of humanitarian crisis in in Afghanistan. It's sort of become a pariah state to a large extent cut off from the West. Uh, where, where, where does Afghan Aid, the Times' and Sunday Times' chosen charity this year, come in? What, what do you do? Well, since, since last year, we've really focused on our humanitarian assistance. Um, so we've, we've assisted perhaps over, well, close to 1.6 million um, in the past year. And that's largely been food distributions, uh, cash assistance, but also, but also winterization assistance, blankets and, and fuel for, to heating, for heating homes. I think in total, we've delivered something like 340,000 food packages to families. And um, 
you know, we're, we've, we've been working with them as well to really try and enable them to come out of this crisis when it ends. Um, obviously, the only way to get out of a food insecurity crisis is to start growing your own food. Um, that means hitting the seasons right and being able to plant seeds, um, harvest crops when, when the time comes. But at the moment, it's looking as uh, say it's going to be another drought year and it's going to be very difficult coming this coming year. Um, I say we want to enable the system so that they can grow more when, when the time comes. Well, Charles, let's pause for a moment. I'm going to play you a clip from the Times and Sunday Times' Christmas campaign. It features the voice of a 35-year-old widow, Nazreen, who has struggled to feed and clothe her five children since her husband died. Uh, it's been voiced by one of our producers. My husband died, leaving me responsible for my five children. I didn't have anything to feed my family, and my children did not have winter clothes. I could not afford to pay for my children's education, and we had lost all our hopes in life. I alone take care of my five children, and there is no one else to support me. I am alone. My life has changed a lot. I'm very happy and thankful to Afghan Aid, who helped me to solve my problems. I didn't have firewood before, but now I have bought it. I had a debt before, but now I have paid that too. I bought winter clothes for my children, and I paid their education course fees. So I'm still joined by Charles Davey, Managing Director of Afghan Aid. Uh, Charles, um, you'll have encountered hundreds and hundreds of stories like Nazreen's, that 35-year-old widow uh, we've just heard from there. Afghan Aid is, uh, for the listeners who don't know, is a British humanitarian and development organisation to work with millions of deprived and excluded families in Afghanistan for almost 40 years. Uh, you build basic services, strengthen the rights of women and children, help protect against natural disasters and climate change and respond to humanitarian emergencies. You've been in the, the business for a long time. I guess my question now is, and it's part of the reason um, the Times and Sunday Times are supporting you this Christmas, uh, how much more difficult is the work of a charity like yours in a sort of post-NATO withdrawal Afghanistan, given um, what that's meant for the country's international standing, the ease of accessing it, uh, as you say, the flow of money in and out of the country uh, and security? How much more difficult has your work become? It's... Let's say it's not become necessarily more difficult, it's changed. Um, certainly the movement of money into the country and around the country is much more is much more challenging. We're having to use traditional systems of the Huala, um, which uh, you know are actually working very well. But uh, adjusting to that was quite a, was quite a, a change. Also, I think uh, when we talk about accessing accessing the beneficiaries, uh, the people that we're working with, that has on the whole improved. Obviously, we've got peace now across the country and um, we're able to reach places that were formerly contested between the Taliban and, the, and government forces or international forces. So that that is an improved aspect of it. But we're still trying to adjust to working with working with a new government, new administrations. And they're, they're still struggling, I think, to get consistent systems in place across the country. So, uh, you know, one one thing that's allowed in one area is not allowed in another. 
and um, we get we find those restrictions we've got to be continually on our toes make sure our staff are well informed about what local circumstances are what what they can and can't do and uh, who they need to inform and who and who not um so it's it's really learning to learning to work in it within a new system um that's that could be the case in in many situations but it's it, you know it's just now it's just making that transition from what what we knew to something that is something that is somewhat different now um but i say the you know the, the big thing for us is uh, is the engagement of our female staff for the most part they're they're able to work and able to reach women and children um across across their work areas but then there's occasions when there's limitations placed on their travel, mm. limitations placed on the way in which they must dress and who they meetings that they can engage with and things. So um, again, it's it's constantly keeps us on our toes. We're constantly having to adapt. Now let's bring in Fawzia Kufi. Fawzia is a former Afghan member of Parliament. Not just that, she was the first female deputy speaker of the Afghan Parliament in the history of the country. Good morning, Fawzia. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us on Times Radio. And um, We've been talking about the fall of Kabul last year and the moment the Taliban uh, took control of Afghanistan. Um, well, let's go back, let's look back to um, 2021. Uh, you were an MP in Afghanistan. You're the first female deputy speaker of the Afghan parliament, a real milestone there. Um, when you look at what's happened since, what's your assessment of the situation for women now in the country? Well, I can't believe uh, that after all those hard works and struggle by the people of Afghanistan and by our allies, we went back to scratch. We are now talking and struggling around some of these core issues. In fact, today I attended a, a big conference organized by a Muslim majority country about girls' education in Afghanistan, where we know um, women's fundamental rights are being denied. Um, and what's happening in Afghanistan does not happen anywhere in the world um, in terms of human rights. Um, Taliban uh, do not allow girls secondary education. They don't let women in public square. Uh, they have a good division of labor. They want the international community to feed the people of Afghanistan. And they want um, their own uh, so-called income tax that they collect uh, to, to go to the Taliban salary. So it's a deteriorating situation. It's not only one aspect of it that human humanitarian uh, crisis, 40 million people are um, uh, in poverty um, uh, and in a rich country. Afghanistan is a rich country in, in natural resources, but yet we are the poor na nation. Uh, but also it, the humanitarian catastrophe is not the only catastrophe. Mm. The human rights catastrophe is actually more than that and a lack of legitimate government. In fact, this Taliban uh, de facto power is not called government. By the UN definition, it's called de facto authority. So lack of legitimate government, which is accountable to the people, makes the situation even worse. Uh, Charles, um it falls your story too. It will be a will be a common one, won't it? You have a generation of Afghan politicians, particularly women, who were allowed to finally to play an active role in in public life and participate fully. Um, you know, in Fawzi's case, very articulate, rose to become deputy speaker of uh, of the Afghan Parliament, playing a big role in civil society. And then overnight, the the rug has been pulled from under them. Yeah, difficult difficult adjustment to go through. Um... And um, I think whether whether you're been a parliamentarian or you've been a professional woman, a working woman, I think uh, students um, 
you know, it's going through this adjustment, uh, trying to deal with it. I think is a very, very difficult time for people. And the um, big uh, and the big dilemma, Charles, for Afghanistan uh, as allies or the uh, Afghanistan's erstwhile allies, rather, the Western countries like Britain, uh, the countries who are involved in the NATO. Uh, NATO invasion and occupation and, and the regime stabilising uh, the old regime. Uh, the dilemma there is whether to send large amounts of aid in uh, and stabilise Afghanistan's economy. But the risk there, obviously, is that you've got a, the humanitarian concerns on one hand and on the other, the big risk is um, you prop up a regime you don't see as legitimate and you inadvertently strengthen the Taliban. What, you know, is, that, is that a calculation Western governments are, are struggling with? I think yes, certainly they're struggling with it. The um, but clearly, you know, the the answer to the answer to uh, you know not wanting to support the Taliban is not certainly not to allow the two people of Talib of, of Afghanistan to starve. Um, I think there's been a, a large amount of international assistance, humanitarian assistance, that's come in over the past year. But we really do do need to move to a different. A different type of engagement where we are able to support, uh, you know, ordinary people to, I say, grow their own food, but uh, you know, make their own livings, and that might mean some some level of engagement with the Taliban, um, with the new government. Well, um, I think we've got to. I think we have to figure this this one out. There's a. It's a. It's a difficult difficult situation, but. Uh, can't go on the way it is. Well, Charles Davey, Managing Director of Afghan Aid, do stay with us. Uh, we're going to bring in Catherine Filt now, the Times' diplomatic correspondent. She knows all about what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan. She's just returned from the country. Morning, Catherine. Good morning. Uh, tell us tell us about your experience in Afghanistan. You've just returned um, and you've obviously, um, you know, you've, you've been everywhere and you've been to Afghanistan uh, before the fall of Kabul. Um, what is it like now? What, 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 were, you, what were you most struck by? Um, it feels, it feels like everything has changed and nothing has changed um, in many ways. When I first went to Afghanistan more than 20 years ago now, you could walk into um, a village and it looked like nothing had changed sort of since biblical times. Um, I, I, and that is still the case when you get out to rural areas. Um, the one thing I noticed that had change was that there were there's now solar panels everywhere which is which is a great advance um but in that sense you it's sort of mind-boggling to wonder where you know all the money that was put into afghanistan in the last 20 years has gone um the 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 kind of work that afghan aid is doing when you know when we saw that what 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 I was struck by was what, how much they were able to do with so little. Um, so, so, you know, really the costs of things like building a new house um, f for people were sort of incredibly low, like uh, $1,500 mm. or something like that. Um, and, and so really um, a small amount of money can have a, a huge impact. But, yeah, it, it, it's you you wonder what has happened to all the money that went in when the Americans were there. Um, places like Kabul, Kabul is now several times the size it was um, 20 years ago, and the provincial capitals as well are are much larger. But go out into um, the rural areas, and it, it it really doesn't feel very very different to uh, to 20 years ago. And I've been hearing from Charles about how uh, the work of a 
an organisation like Afghan Aid has changed in some respects, uh, become trickier, particularly for for women. What, what about your experiences as a as a woman journalist in a in a Taliban run country? Uh, you know, has it made the job was it, did it feel any more difficult or more perilous than it would would usually be? didn't feel more perilous. It felt, um, I mean, one of the ironies of the Taliban takeover is that there's really no fighting going on in the country. So I would say that every other time I've been to Afghanistan before, um, security has been foremost in your mind because, you know, obviously uh, I've had friends kidnapped by the Taliban in the past and and, and that was a fear, uh, as was just, you know, run, running into, into crossfire, you know, getting somewhere where there was fighting going on and that has stopped um and as a woman i i think the first time i was meant to go into afghanistan was i think it was october 2001 and uh the taliban had given me a visa um or agreed to give me a visa to go in and it was only when i showed up at the embassy and they saw my passport that they realized i was a woman and decided that they weren't going to let me in in a group uh of men um but but in general i think that you were as a woman in many of these places you're afforded a special status because you're a western woman mm. Um, and, and so you're sort of treated like a third sex. What was different on this trip was that actually I had to, uh, I, I had to adhere to the same rules as Afghan women. So, for example, um, I couldn't travel in the car uh, sitting next to um, the Times photographer Richard Poley because men and women are not allowed to sit together in the car. I couldn't sit in the front of the car. Um, that there's now a new rule that men and women have to work in separate offices. Um, they can't, you know, they, they can't, you can't have a mixed office. And so when I was going around to Afghan aid projects and we were out during the day, um, then we'd come to an office to have some lunch and I would be put in a separate room from the men um, to, 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 to adhere to these rules. So, um, yeah, it, it was odd that, yeah, that these rules were imposed on me as a as a Westerner, where in the past you've usually got a bit more leeway, and it's usually Afghan women who have to kind of, you know, suffer those strictures. Um, and I think it's just becoming very unpredictable because every day we would hear of uh, a new rule um, that, that women had to adhere to. Though that we ran into, uh, I think the governor of the province we were in had said that women's faces shouldn't be photographed. Um, so that was a slight concern for our photographer. Um, so, you know, things we could get around like that. Um, but but there's always a new edict. There's a new edict that women couldn't buy SIM cards, um, that women had been banned from parks at, at least at certain times uh, or days of the week when men were there. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think for Afghan women, it's, it's really a process of navigating these changes. Um, but, you know, it's them that are going to have to live through this. It's, it's those women who are waiting to find out, um, are they going to be able to go back to secondary school? Is that going to, you know, the Taliban keep saying that, that when the circumstances are right, they, they will allow girls to go back to secondary school. Um, so, so it's really, it, it's an ever-changing landscape. Well, that's all we got time for on today's podcast. I'll be back tomorrow for one more show before Matt Chorley's triumphant return. In the meantime, don't forget to like or subscribe to this podcast wherever you get yours from.